Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. All right. My guest is Dr. Stephen Nadeau. Let me tell you just a little bit about Dr. Nadeau. He's a scientist and urologist with over 30 years in the U.S. Tertiary Care Center treating patients with non-malignant pain, and he's listed in the best doctors of America. He got in touch with me. Dr. Nadeau, thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Roy. Would you share with us what uh, what exactly do you do when you when you say you treat patients you know, who have non-malignant pain, so that would be non-cancer patients, I would imagine, um, in a U.S. tertiary center. So you've, you've had a lot of experience, 30 years' worth of experience dealing with pain, severe pain that has been experienced and is experienced by your patients, right? Yes. So what are the treatment options that are available to you? Well, um, so far, uh, in spite of uh, very serious uh, issues in the national climate of pain management, I've largely been able to still practice best medical principles in treating patients with chronic pain. Um, Certainly there are some types of pain, uh, for example, trigeminal neuralgia, uh, for which non-opioids are the the optimal and really the, the only viable medical treatment. But most of the chronic pain that we see, uh, whether it's patients with uh, a chronic daily headache, by which I mean headache 24 hours a day, seven days a week, patients with chronic back and neck pain, uh, patients with uh, complex regional pain syndrome, uh, opioids uh, are really key to enabling the patient to achieve control of their pain. And, this- and I emphasize control because I think it's a, a good uh, operational uh, benchmark. Uh, it is relatively straightforward for a patient to tell you is their pain adequately controlled or not. And in the course of a 30-minute clinic visit, um, I can reasonably reliably tell whether the pain is adequately controlled. And if it is, I know I don't need to make any changes in uh, treatment. Um, chronic pain is uh, uh, complicated. Um, perhaps the most important comorbidity is uh, depression, which is uh, the prevalence of which is terribly underestimated uh, in this population. Uh, published figures are 25% or less. Uh, my own experience is close to 100%. Uh, this is tremendously important because for the patient with chronic pain who's depressed, uh, successful treatment with depression uh, may be the single best option in alleviating their pain, uh, not an increase in their opioid dosage. So you, Uh, you establish the opioid dosage that controls the pain, and then you treat the rest of the issue. Is that correct? You, you, you take care of controlling the pain first? Because as one physician said to me on this program some months ago, the steps that lead to, and this is an area I don't like to go to, but I'm brought up time and again, 
is suicide. And so the four steps were pain, social isolation, depression, suicide. Well, I think the best answer to your question is you always treat the the whole patient Mm -hmm. to the extent possible. So uh, a first uh, visit is going to entail gathering as much information as I can about uh, the details of the pain problem, uh, a careful assessment for depression, an assessment of uh, sleep disorders, um, uh, an assessment as to what role uh, non-opioid treatments might be able to play uh, in the treatment of pain. So, for example, in complex regional uh, pain syndrome, uh, there are uh, non-opiate uh, drugs that may be of, of value. So uh, everything is going to – we're going to start working on all fronts simultaneously. Okay, we're so we're going to initiate treatment of depression. If it's there, first visit. We're going to initiate treatment of sleep problem, first visit. And if it looks like the, the severity of the pain and its impact on the patient's life is sufficient to uh, warrant consideration of uh, opiates, the quality of the pain is uh, such that we will likely respond to opiates, then we may uh, introduce uh, very low-dose uh, opiates uh, on the first visit. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. With me now is Dr. Stephen Natto, scientist and neurologist with over 30 years in a U.S. tertiary care center treating patients with non-malignant pain, and he's listed in the best doctors of America. Dr. Natto, you heard the interview that uh, I aired with the Federal Minister of Health. What did you come away with? Uh, well, I, I thought that it was... Um, Somebody in government uh, trying to uh, live with the realities of the, the, the political situation and of the, the uh, uh, regulatory environment, um, and and really um, not dealing with the, the specifics of the problem because really almost nobody is. I mean, it's there's this big search for a one-size-fits-all solution, and, and that solution has been simply uh, put a ceiling on opiate dosage, uh, where the devil is in the details, um, the details of how we uh, uh, manage chronic pain, uh, the details of how we train uh, healthcare practitioners to manage pain, uh, we basically don't train them at all, uh, and therein lies a significant problem. Um, uh, the details of the medical strategies that we uh, use to approach patients with uh, chronic pain, uh, it's complicated, uh, but it is a substantially soluble uh, problem, um, uh, but we're just not dealing with the details. No. And, and wouldn't you expect that... Uh that a minister of health who's also a physician would approach the situation somewhat differently? Well, not necessarily. I mean, um, the whole business of uh, treating uh, pain has has always been a a point of vulnerability in medicine. 
Um, uh, there's always been a highly prevalent uh, suspicion that when patients say they're in a lot of pain, uh, physicians look at them and think, well, they don't look like they're in so much pain to me, so I think they're exaggerating and they just really want to take these drugs to, to get high. So there's always been an element of patient suspicion. Uh, there's always been a, a tremendous amount of, of fear uh, about use of uh, opiates, uh, simply born of lack of education and training on mm. How to use them, but um, isn't that just a, a isn't that just a cynical dismissiveness of the of the pain patient? Someone comes in and says, "I don't have a regular headache all day." I'm as one per- person said to me, "It feels like I have a hot, burning hot iron pushed against my face twenty four seven. That's my chronic pain." This person said. So to say they're you know to have the attitude that they're just looking for drugs is really being dismissive. And, and maybe it's just endemic to what's going on or just a misunderstanding and no training. But it really is dismissive of the patient, doesn't understand and doesn't really try to understand what the issue is and what the patient needs. Well, I personally agree with that. And, and, I, and certainly uh, over all the years that I've treated patients, uh, the key to my management has been uh, a relationship of uh, trust and maintenance of a relationship of trust. So, right. When patients tell me that their pain is not adequately uh, controlled, uh, I believe them, uh, and I make changes accordingly, and with some uh, tweaking, you know, the typical response is, okay, I'm, I'm, I still have pain, but it's, it's under control now, Doc. I don't need you to change a single other thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think a relationship of, of trust, uh, works, and I argue that it's the foundation of a relationship between a patient and a physician. Would have but, to be. Uh, but well, I agree. But uh, I'm just telling you that my approach to this and my attitude, unfortunately, is a bit iconoclastic. Yeah, no, uh, I, I understand that too. Uh, are, are you under pressure to to not treat patients with opioids? Is there a regulatory mechanism in place that's applying heat on you to hey? back off treating them with opioids. Yes. Um, it's not easy being a pain doc. It is not easy. And and anyone in the field knows this. They know that uh, there's there may be lurking uh, a risk of loss of clinical privileges. Uh, there may be lurking uh, a risk of... Uh, uh, hearings before their board of medicine and uh, sanctions and so on. Um, so no, it's it's not easy on no. a daily basis. It's constantly battling with pharmacies and uh, insurance companies. Um, so it, it's it's a lot of work, but but you just kind of accept that. Well, Dr. Natto, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to stop it here because of the clock. But I do hope you'll come back. We'll ask you to come back on the program. We are going to continue with this issue. We're not going to stop. And I I do thank you for spending the time with us today. My pleasure, Roy. All the best. Dr. Stephen Natto. You're listening to The Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM 900 CHML. With me now, Don Ray Downton. She's a journalist in the Globe and Mail. She had a column just uh, not not long ago in which she states that she uses fentanyl, prescribed fentanyl, and has for 12 years. 
and for one reason, to as much as possible, control her pain. She's been a guest on this program before. Don Ray, thank you for coming back. Hi, Roy. I'm glad to be back. Marvin Ross is a health columnist for the HuffPost Canada. He wrote his latest column based on uh, experiences in the chasing down the opioid story. And uh, part of the column has to do with what Marvin heard on this program. Of course, he's also been a participant on two separate occasions. And Marvin, it's great to have you back. Thank you. My pleasure. I, I just want to start with with this. We were going to play a clip from uh, from uh, Minister Philpot, but we realized that I can't really rely on how it, how it may come out. So one of the points that she made, and I know, Don Ray, this is something you want to get at. One of the points that the minister made was, after I quizzed her on it, was that, wait a minute, uh, what doctors are being told to do are based on guidelines. These are just guidelines. It has to do with the guidelines that were released about a month ago, and I spoke with the editor of the of the uh, McMaster group that put out the guidelines. And uh, she said, they're guidelines. They're not, I'm paraphrasing, they're not instructions. They're just guidelines. Well, if they're guidelines, they're sure as heck masquerading as instructions uh, as far as many doctors are concerned. Don Ray, I know this is important to you. Oh, it's critical. It's critical to the whole issue, Roy. Um, you know, it's not just important to doctors. It, it, it changes the story for patients, and we're thrown into hell because of it. All the while, the health minister, at best, is being disingenuous when she describes the guidelines as just that, guidelines. The reason that I know that is because she has to know that in British Columbia last June, a full year ago, the guideline was introduced to British Columbians as a legally enforceable medical standard. Now, Jane Philpott is a doctor, so she knows what a standard is. So when she said they were just guidelines, she must have known that they weren't guidelines any longer in British Columbia, and that they hadn't been just guidelines for a long time. And I don't, I don't know whether she knows that the pain medicine physicians of, of British Columbia Society complained to their college that the new standard was impossible for them to use. They thought it was incomprehensible and dangerous. They said it had at least 100 points in it that needed clarification. And when I look at what it is now, now, a year later, when I look at the BC College's website and see that standard, it has not improved. It has not got any more comprehensible. It, is, it has not got any less dangerous for doctors and patients. Marvin, what's your sense of, uh, look, hold on, these are just guidelines when the minister says that. How do you respond? Well, uh, my understanding is in Ontario they are just guidelines. But I think doctors being petrified of their colleges um, treat them as if they're, they're edicts. So I think that's part of the problem. BC, yes, it's, you know, the regulation. Uh, but in Ontario, they honestly are guidelines, but the doctors don't seem to understand that. Well, this is what one doctor in Ontario told me, essentially. The word may say guidelines, but I can't approach it as guidelines. He said, if I get guidelines on diabetes, yes, that's guidelines. But this one to me is frightening. And this is one doctor who said, it spent a lot of years getting my medical license. I can't afford to lose it now. So doctors clearly, and we heard it from Stephen Nadeau just a few minutes ago, the professor who joined us uh, from, uh, from uh, the United States, doctors are under pressure to reduce and eliminate uh, opioids. And Don Ray, you uh, you ran into that yourself with a doctor you had for over 20 years. 
25 years. I had a terrific relationship with her for 25 years, and then she was spoken to by the Nova Scotia College. Um, and I, I believe that the CEO of the Nova Scotia College is, is a real architect, let's use that word, of these guidelines. And so the um, enforcement of these guidelines down here is, is really fierce. So my GP of 25 years told me that I had to come off my opioids, which I'd been on for 12 years, and that was the way it was. I was very lucky, as I explained to you before, that um, I was also being followed by a pain clinic down here um, where they were um, uh, where they were able to be a little more flexible, but I really don't know how long, I don't know when my luck is going to run out. I think that my pain doctor at the pain clinic is retiring this summer, and I, I just live with dread every day thinking about that. How many patients live with that kind of dread, Marvin, across the country? Um, I would expect most of them do because they're really reliant upon their doctors. And when a doctor is on vacation, um, it's like Russian roulette to get a prescription um, repeated because you may get a doctor covering who doesn't agree with prescribing opioids. And so the patient is just out of luck. Yeah, exactly. You wrote in your, your last column, your most recent column, in HuffPost, Canada, is titled, It's Time for Ottawa to Listen to the Evidence about Opioid Use. Right. Tell, tell us about that. Well, the evidence for the use of opioids is there. Um, they're, the government, in their um, hysteria over uh, the deaths of drug addicts, who are not taking these drugs for legitimate reasons. They weren't prescribed by doctors for a specific condition, um, are dying of overdoses. Well, okay, that's one problem, but you don't solve that problem by uh, coming down with draconian measures against people who are legitimate sufferers of pain, who have relationships with their doctors, uh, who are trusted by their doctors and who are not getting high on the, the medication, uh, they're being helped by it. And it is totally absurd to um, impose conditions on one group with the vague hope that you will solve another problem, which has no relationship. And for the generic if, you, if, if I'm a drug addict, yeah. who's buying the drugs from the street corner um, pusher, for that individual, the minister has publicly proposed making heroin available for the actual chronic pain patient. And the, many of the statistics that apply to the generic drug addict are made to appear as though they apply to the chronic pain patient. For the chronic pain patient, the, uh, the uh, objective is to get them off the very medication that makes life livable. For the generic drug addict who doesn't have chronic pain issues, yeah. who has an addiction issue, they want to provide heroin. Yeah, and I used the example in my uh, blog about Portugal, which legalized drug use. They've decriminalized it. I mean, we've decriminalized or we're going to decriminalize marijuana use. Uh, there's no reason we can't decriminalize um, all illegal drugs and at the same time provide pain patients with the prescribed drugs that they need. Don Ray, the minister told me, and I know that you 
you caught this and, and immediately. She told me her policies are evidence-based. Everything is evidence-based, you say? Um, you know, the colleges, and there's, well, in, in the BC College Standard cites this and the guidelines cite this, that everything is evidence-based. But, for, for example, this is what the, the BC College's position starts out as being. It says the public health crisis of prescription drug misuse has developed in part due to the prescribing of physicians. The profession has a collective ethical responsibility to, to mitigate its contribution to the problem, particularly the overprescribing of opioids, sedatives, and stimulants. There's just no evidence of this. Uh, one of the most respected um, pain researchers and physicians down here in Halifax. She's known around the world for her research on pain. She's getting really tired of saying this, I think. I hear this from her so much. She says, medical exposure to opioids does not cause addiction, period. There is just no evidence, although the government and the colleges seem to say that there are, although they can never point to it, there is just no evidence that medical opioid use has anything to do with, Roy, what you call the generic street drug problem. It's not happening. People on opioids are not um, staying on them too long. If they're staying on them a long time, it's because they still have pain. Most of them are not staying on them a long time. People who have chronic pain are on them to lessen their pain. They never get high. I don't get high. I've been on fentanyl at at a good dose for 12 years. Never once have I been high, but I have had my pain helped. Now, if you weren't on the fentanyl, if you, if you didn't have the fentanyl at all, if it were just taken away from you, and that's your fear, that in some months when your current physician uh, retires and you're assigned to another doctor, maybe somebody fresh out of, uh, out of medical school with an idea that opioids are just wrong and, sorry, Don Ray, uh, there are other options for you and we'll put those in place. We'll have a program of exercise and who knows what, uh, and that's going to help you. Um, how is that going to impact on you? Do you know, Roy, a program of exercise wouldn't be too useful for me because the very best position that I can find for my body with the pain I have is sitting. Once I stand, I have about 30 seconds before my back starts screaming. Um, I walk in a very strange way. I sort of walk, I shuffle more than I walk. It hurts me a lot to walk. I really can't see doing too much yoga or exercise. I really can't even see meditating. I would be in pain trying to hold my back straight. So... To your question, where would I be? I would not be here. I don't mean to be cavalier about this, and I know that it's that people feel it's a dark place to go to, but I think we have to acknowledge that pain patients are being pushed to a very dark place in Canada these days. My dark place would be gone. I would have to take my life. I have my suicide plan. My family knows I have it. I don't think they like it, but I think they understand why I have to have it. Uh, and I've been very careful not to get them involved in it. I think you, you have to be very careful about that these days um, so my husband can have no, no fingerprints on my suicide, and so I, I've arranged it to be that way. But I've also arranged it so that um, the message will get out as widely as possible if I do have to go, why I've had to go. What a horrific way to have to contemplate the end of your life. So unnecessary. You've been on the fentanyl for 12 years. You're not, a, you're not a fentanyl addict. You don't get high off it. What it allows you to do is live with a modicum of pain. It makes your life livable. So if they take you off this, they will be responsible for your death. They'll say they're not, 
but ultimately they will be. Well, I can't see it in any other way, and I'm the person that it's happening to, so I think I know best about this. There, uh, when I went on fentanyl, I did so only after I had failed every other method of pain relief that is available to us that anyone knows about. You know, so I had um, uh, nerve blocks, and I had uh, group therapy, and I had uh, infusions, and I had this and I had that, and I... I I trialed and failed everything, so was then started on a low dose of fentanyl. And over 12 years, what happens is eventually you do have to increase your dose because your body becomes tolerant of it. This is, right. this is not to say you're addicted. So I, I, I am not addicted, but if my fentanyl is withdrawn from me and I don't have anything to replace it, there is nothing to replace it, I already know that, then then I'm gone. I, I, I can't live with the kind of pain that I have. There, it would be stupid to do that. There'd be no point. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There is one more clip I'm going to play, and then uh, we'll quickly have my guests react to it. It was the last question I asked uh, the Minister of Health when she was on this program two weeks ago, and it had to do with patients who may have to stay on opioids for a lengthy period of time. Mm-hmm. Minister, your responsibility is to do more than hope. Your responsibility as the National Health Minister is to provide. I'll just read you the last line from that email. I'm terrified of losing my medication again. If it happens, I have two choices, suicide or street drugs. Without medication, my life is not worth living. 38-year-old woman. Minister, consider the patients. Remember, you're a doctor. If you were not a health minister, if you were a doctor, I would hope you have, would have a diametrically opposed view to the one you're putting forward now, which honestly sounds to me like government agenda and little else with a million to a million and a half people in this country being sacrificed. Well, I, I'm not sure that I can say anything that will entirely satisfy you. I hope that you have understood that I have tried to make it clear that every patient deserves appropriate care. And I have not said at any point today or any other day that, there, uh, uh, that a patient under the direction of a, of a well-informed care provider, um, it may be entirely appropriate for somebody to stay on a an opioid for a long-term basis. That needs to be, uh, decision needs to be taken uh, on a case-by-case basis. And absolutely, for many patients, that is exactly what they need. Uh, and if that's the case and that decision has been made and the patient is uh, has a good quality of life and their care provider believes that the benefits of any get medication outweigh the harms of that medication, then they deserve to have that medication. Then, Minister, you need to put that into action starting tomorrow because it's not happening today. So uh, we have 90 seconds left. Don Ray, it sounds to me like the minister's saying, and she said in many cases, sounds to me like she's saying in many cases, a patient staying on opioids for an ex- protracted period of time is perfectly fine as long as it's agreed upon with the patient and the, and the, and the health care provider. Well, Roy, all I can say to that is that Minister Philpott and I are not living in the same world, clearly. Uh, what she is saying is not happening. If indeed uh, she means to have that happen, as you say, she needs to let doctors know right away. Oh. I wrote her when I heard her say that on your program two weeks ago, and I said, please let me know when this will be happening. It's not happening now, and please let me know when you will be conveying this new change in policy to physicians. Right. I, have watched the, I have watched the college websites since she said 
said that nothing has changed. And in BC, as I say, it is a legal standard, and it's still a legal standard today. And I will keep watching for when it becomes Jane Philpott's version of what she says. It Marvin? Uh, yeah, I agree with what Don said, and I would like to add, um, I should have mentioned this before, but Don has a, uh, a link to Prime Minister Trudeau saying that um, chronic pain is just a mild, niggling uh, irritant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so maybe it would be a good idea for you to have him on <laughs> and listen to what people are suffering. Okay, you get him for me, I'll talk to him. I'll try. <laughs> Please. Marvin, thank you so much. Don Ray, thank you. We will stay in touch with you, of course, and have you back. Thank, thank you, you very much. much. All the best. Don Ray, Downton, and Marvin Ross on The Roy Green Show. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, but I, and I expected there would be protests, and I expected there would be uh, Democrats would be very hard to, um, to quiet down. But I didn't expect to see what we're seeing now. So am I seeing what's really going on, or am I seeing what media organizations want me to see in order for me to receive a message they want me to receive? Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I hesitate to equivocate, but I think you're seeing a, a bit of both. I mean, certainly the media, I think, is flogging this thing. The Democratic Party, as you and I have discussed before, is pretty empty of ideas. I mean, they, as you know, in the eight years under Obama, they lost governorships, they lost legislatures, they've, you know, they've of course, lost the House and the Senate. Um, they're, they're largely a party without an agenda and without leadership. I mean, all their leaders are geriatrics. Um, the media, I think many of the traditional media outlets in this country, and I'm certainly not the only one that's saying this, a lot of the commentators have noted this, uh, has kind of started to fill in as the opposition party. Uh, so now the New York Times and the Washington Post, CNN, they're, they're actually the real Democratic Party now. They're the ones that are running against the conservatives, running against the Republicans. Uh, so I think there's no question that they are they have an agenda that they're firing off a lot of very questionable news stories by the standards measured by the standards that we used to have in that profession. Uh, so there's certainly that going on, but there's also, there's face it, there is a lot of division in this country uh, that has been fostered largely by politicians, but um, it's been going on for a long, long time, and it's just gotten worse. Is there, uh, I have a friend who lives in the U.S. who has been in touch with me, and I, I, ask, I ask, you know, what's going on, really, what's happening? And, and his response was, we're on the edge. So what does on the edge mean? He said we're on the edge of social chaos on a nationwide level. Is he right? Is he wrong? Well, I mean, by all the indicators I see, uh, you know, I think he's probably right. Uh, I'm hoping he's not. Uh, but I think, I think Obama, and again, we've discussed this on your show, I think Obama spent virtually the entire eight years of his presidency trying to divide Americans every way possible. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, his rhetoric uh, and his friends in the media would have you believe otherwise, but it was always black versus white, gay versus straight, cops versus people on the street. Uh, you know, Divide and conquer. Poor. Right. And so, they, so basically, the country is already was already kind of on edge with every, you know, every grievance group in the country now, every hyphenated group in America now has a grievance organization and is filing lawsuits and is challenging and wants rights for this, that, and the other. 
Uh, and so there's a lot of social tension in the country. Now, that said, the overwhelming majority of people live their lives day to day and don't dwell on this stuff. I mean, face it, people are still celebrating Father's Day today, and people are still packing restaurants and packing movie theaters and going to ball games and everything else. So uh, it's not like, I mean, I'm not scared about getting in my car and driving to the local mall. Uh, I really am not. And the people I know, uh, the vast majority of people I know are living their lives completely normally. But there is no question that in the political arena, uh, there is a great deal of tension being fostered. And I think you're also saying, I think a lot of people are tuning out the news. Uh, you, our industry, you know, we feed on this stuff, you feed on it, I feed on it, because it's our jobs, and we have to have our faces in it all the time. But I think a lot of people are just tuning this stuff out. They, they, I mean, for example, Trump supporters in all our surveys, they're not backing off at all. They think the guy's doing a great job. Uh, the people that have drunk the anti-Trump Kool-Aid, of course, they hate every movie makes. Uh, and, uh, but I, I, you know, I don't think really, ultimately, that most people that voted for Trump uh, are unhappy with what he's doing. Mm. I think they think he's doing exactly what he said he would do. There's so much, I'm going to protect my turfism going on. Wednesday morning could have been a mass murder bloodbath had the Capitol Police not been present and had that 66-year-old maniac been a better shot. I mean, people have talked about that. He didn't really know how to use the weapon. He he wasn't a good shot. So thank God. So it could have been a mass murder and bloodbath. And the left almost immediately began to bring up the issue of easy firearms access in the United States. And that said to me... What's that? The the gun control crowd, you know, I mean, if, if somebody... I mean, these are the same people that spend hundreds of millions of dollars making movies that glorify guns, uh, and then they turn around and pour hundreds of millions of dollars trying to try to take the guns away from the average American. Yeah, but uh, is it too far, Russ? I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm watching. I'm looking from from the north, and we have our own issues here, but not. Not as significant, I, I don't think, societally as, as you're facing in the United States. And much is said about the fact there are 300, 300 million firearms in the U.S. And, 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 and the country, as my friend in the state says, is on edge. Um, is, there, is there room for, 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 for people to come together? Is there room for the America that I saw when I was growing up to come back and be what it is? Or, again, I'm going to say to you again, am I just being influenced and I don't watch CNN. I haven't watched them for the longest time. I can't take it anymore. I, I don't watch MSNBC because I t- can't take it anymore. But I watch other uh, news channels in the U.S. And it just seems that I'm being constantly peppered with the same message. So is the U.S. Can, – can America come back to what, what I always saw it as as a young man? Or has it really not changed? And is it, I'm going back to an earlier question. Is it just the, the news media – who's hammering me with a message that I'm supposed to see the U.S. Um, with the, uh, as Americans at each other's throats. Right. Well, I, I don't think, no, to be honest with you, I don't think there's ever going to be the America that I grew up in. Sad to say. I wish I could say that for my kids, but it isn't going to happen. Uh, they've grown up. I mean, our education system is in shambles. The left targeted our education system, and our kids are uh, don't get the education that they used to get, that we used to get. Uh, there's not a lot of, their knowledge base is very narrow. I mean, I've done polls. Roy, where I've asked, do you think most Americans can find North Korea on a map? And some huge percentage of Americans said, no, I don't think most Americans can find North Korea on a map. 
That's what they think of their other their fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. They don't think when the Scottish refer Scottish independence referendum was going on. I ask, do you think? And, and I think over fifty percent of Americans questioned whether their fellow Americans could find Scotland on a map. Yeah. I mean, so you know they, that's what you're talking about now. I am. With with regards to guns, that is so, that is such an inflammatory issue, and the left and the news media exploits that to death. But the thing I find fascinating is that you know you hear the much maligned National Rifle Association. But has anybody who's a member of the National Rifle Association ever committed a violent act with a gun? I, I would suggest no, because if one guy did it, if one NRA member committed a crime with a gun, it would be on the front page of the New York Times from now until the end of time. Yeah. It would be the lead story on CNN from now I until the end of time. I don't think guns are bad things, by the way. I never had well, guns know, I, or tools. I grew up at a time when you know people hunted and things like that. And nobody yep. thought a word, a thought a thing about it. You know they didn't have mass shootings. You, you know, Fran, something just occurred to me, and I bet you I'm going to see emails. And it's going to when I said, "Will the United States ever return to what it was, what I saw it as being when I was a young man?" Oh, Green, you wanted to go back to a white-dominated uh, United States because that's the default position of the people who can't hear what I'm saying. What in fact I'm saying is. The United States had a global leadership that we looked up to and respected. The United States was a template for success, be it societally, be it uh, – and you had problems. Obviously, you had problems. Every society has problems. But yeah, militarily, politically, it was – we were lucky that we were on the side of the United States and not the evil empire run by those doer-looking um, thrill killers in, in Moscow. Right, but right. See, the the left. It's always been fascinating to me throughout my life how that that there are people in the United States that truly believe the United States is the worst country on the planet. Now, what's with that? And and I just, it's like, what what world do you live in? I mean, you know, there are more freedoms in the United States. There is more opportunity in the United States. The United States, in my humble opinion, has done more good for the world than any other nation in the history of the world. And yet, there is the Democratic Party in this country which is a party has built its, its, its what successes it has on, the vic, on victimization, goes out there every day. Obama spent eight years preaching you know, and apologizing for the United States. Now, yes, you are absolutely right. The United States has done things that we shouldn't be proud of. Uh, slavery, certainly, although I will note that we got rid of slavery 150-plus you know, years ago, okay, and, and, and most blacks in this country are doing darn well. Uh, and... And, and compared to what, where they came from, for example, uh, then, you know, Native Americans, no, we didn't treat them well either. But when you look at the history of the world, to, you know, to the victors belong the spoils. That's certainly not unique to the United States. And when you look how we rebuilt Germany and Japan after World War II, when you, we, you look how we protected the, largely protected the world from communist aggression for decades, um, and it's fascinating to me that all of these countries in Europe and elsewhere that whine about Trump and whine about the United States, who's the first person that they turn to when they're at a jam? If they have an earthquake, if they have a military threat, if Ebola breaks out, whatever. Who is the first person that the entire world, first country that the entire world turns to for money, expertise, et cetera, et cetera? It's always the United yeah, States. And yeah. yet these same people complain about the United States Friend, all the time. I have to take a quick break, and I don't think they really need to turn to the United States because the United States volunteers to be there, usually, right. before they can even exactly. ask. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.
Oh, my Fran Coombs is with me. I always, always feel good talking to Fran, managing editor of RasmussenReports.com. You can, uh, you can uh, sign on to Rasmussen's uh, regular reports about what's going on in the United States and the polling that they do. It didn't cost you anything. Just go to RasmussenReports.com. Fran, is Donald Trump doing everything he can do? No, right. I mean, the question is really: is 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 Trump the product of all this, or is he the guy that's causing all of it? And I think, to some degree, um, I think there's a, a very high level of frustration among the kind of people who voted for Trump. Uh, they they vote Democrat, they get what they don't want. They vote Republican, they get what they don't want. The Republicans say, "Hey, give us the House, and we'll stop Obamacare. Give us this. We hope oh, we can't do it without the Senate. Oh, we can't do it without the White House." These people all vote. They vote for the Republicans. They vote for the so-called conservative candidates, and they get sold out. I think there's so those voters are extremely frustrated. I mean, for those voters, eight years of Obama was like eight years in purgatory. Uh, a guy who basically felt America was a, a second-rate nation. A guy who was basically trying to redistribute, use the government to redistribute wealth. Uh, a guy who believed in more and more big government. Uh, a guy who didn't really believe in America's leadership role. Um, that you know, Barack Obama was an anathema for was anathema for an enormous part of the American population, and they didn't see a Jeb Bush uh, or a Mitt Romney four years before that as any kind of viable alternative. Mm-hmm. And so, what did we get? We got Trump, and there's no question that Trump has rough edges, but yeah. he's a tough guy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of, a senior editor, managing editor of Rasmussen Reports and a former editor of the Washington Times newspaper. And he's with us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Fran was with us throughout the primaries and throughout the election campaign and uh, just provided us incredible perspectives of, uh, of what's going on. So... Fran, on this whole idea of Russia and Russian involvement in the American election and the Russians being responsible for Hillary Clinton's dark glasses and the Russians being responsible for anything and everything that could possibly go wrong and the Russians being engaged with uh, Donald Trump and he being engaged with them and, and now there's the Mueller's investigation. What's the true objective here, and what do you expect? What does your instinct as a, as a newsman tell you? What's, what's going to come out of all of this? Well, first of all, Roy, I have no idea where this Russia thing is going. I mean, to me, it's complete nonsense, and I think to a lot of Americans, it's complete nonsense. I mean, basically, this is, as I was saying earlier, uh, this is a party that has a, a national party that has no agenda. Uh, the Democratic National Party has no agenda. So basically, all it has is no and Russia. Uh, and so uh, the, this whole Russia thing is being constantly being fed by the media. Being it's just you know new revelations by the media, and then uh, the, the politicians all get nervous, and so they throw a little money out, or somebody calls for a special prosecutor, or whatever. I have no idea where it's going to go. I mean, there's been absolutely no proof that a single vote was moved by the Russians. Uh, there's so far as we know, even Comey says that. Uh, Trump himself was not under investigation, uh, and there's no indication that he is under investigation. Uh, but this is politics 101, and how long it's going to go or where it's going to lead, I don't have a clue. 
There are people who suggest that there is a shadow government in place, and the shadow government is being run by Barack Obama, whose residence is in Washington, I understand, and that Mr. Obama, with, uh, with, with his legions of supporters, is in fact organizing and orchestrating the anti-Trump campaign and anti-Trump movement uh, in the United States. Is there anything even remotely possibly true to that? No, I don't believe that. I do believe that there are Obama administration holdovers who are leaking stuff. I believe that the uh, the traditional major media in this country is overwhelmingly liberal Democrat uh, and progressive, and uh, that I, I believe that a lot of these anonymous, so-called anonymous sources are them just talking to each other. I mean, as you know, Comey himself refuted uh, a major, the major New York Times story that kicked off the whole Russia thing, and also... Uh, both CNN and ABC had to retract stories that they had done on the basis of Comey's testimony. Um, I think this I think it's, this thing is just being fed by Trump's opponents, and it's just kind of a circular thing. Uh, and it's just gonna we're gonna we're just gonna have to see how it plays out. Uh, Trump doesn't help himself from time to time with some of his tweets, as we know. But as I said earlier, I think if if this was a Jeb Bush or a traditional Republican, that he would have already wilted. Uh, and probably surrendered and resigned under the fire from the mm-hmm. media. And if there's Trump's going to fight this out to the bloody end. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that if he runs in 2020, and I don't know what's going to happen between the end of 2017 or the middle of 2017 and the, and the vote in 2020, but I have a feeling he's got a more than good chance of being reelected uh, because the people, the people who voted for him, as you said earlier, see no real reason not to vote for him again, or is that, am I understanding that correctly? Right, so far I would say that's true, and I think also, look, people, you know, if you're not a professional politician, if you're not in the professional resistance, if you will, uh, you, you, you get inured to all this stuff. I mean, how much negativity can you take? After a while, it's just, oh, they're crying wolf again. Uh, I mean, and what did people see? People saw these congressmen shot, and all that happened within 10 days after a left-wing comedian posted photos of herself holding Donald Trump's no. bloodied head. Uh, and, and the New York Times and that ilk all praised a, uh, a play in New York that depicted the assassination of Trump. Uh, they, don't, you know, they, they see where the people see where this stuff is coming from. Uh, and whether they feel strongly about Trump or not, most people measure their lives by money in their pocket, how, how's their job going, can they sell their house, can they buy another car. Uh, and the economy down here is doing quite well, actually, uh, certainly compared to the way it was under Obama. Uh, and, you know, Obamacare, for example. I mean, if, if the Republicans do nothing, Obamacare is still going to come a cropper. It's a disaster. Uh, so... All these things, I mean, somebody's even said, you know, what the Republicans ought to do is just step back and let Obamacare play out. Um, and we were already seeing, you know, the insurance companies bailing out of states, rates skyrocketing, all this kind of stuff. So uh, taxpayers can't afford all this stuff, this crazy stuff that the left's trying to do. Um, but I think, I think if Trump just stays the course, it'll be interesting to see where we are three years from now. Now, there is the issue of uh, keeping certain countries off the list of countries that are allowed to have people move from those countries to the United States, in other words, obtain media uh, visas. That is before the Supreme Court of the United States. And the left says it's a, it's a Muslim ban, and the right says, no, it's uh, the president keeping uh, the United States safe from countries with a history of or a record of uh, exporting terrorism. 
once you get the Supreme Court of the country involved in a cornerstone agenda piece for the president, does that not weaken the president's position, if he happens to lose at the Supreme Court no, level? No, not at all. I mean, it's the high court of the land. I mean, if, if the left wants to fight this all the way up to, I mean, again, the courts have been packed with judges that invent the law. I mean, look, look, where, look where Trump's running the ground. His, his plan is running the ground. In the Ninth Circuit, which is the West mm-hmm. Coast Circuit, it's the most overturned appeals court in the country. It's packed with left-wing judges. Uh, so, you know, Trump's opponents know to play to that court. They know that's where they're going to get the answer that they want. They're going to get the rulings they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but face it, Trump's opponents, even if the Supreme Court upholds his ban, they'll just demonize the Supreme Court. I mean, that's what they do. I mean, they, they demonize all the institutions. That's the way these people operate. They, they're dividing the country. They're, they're saying, of course it's not a Muslim ban, but they say it's a Muslim ban. Why? Because they want to drive a wedge between law-abiding Muslims and other Americans. Everything that, everything that the Republicans do or Trump does is racist, sexist, homophobic, blotty, blotty, blah, blah, which never has any bearing on reality, but that's how those folks operate. Keep emotions running high. I uh, spoke with the university professor who was Barack Obama's advisor on immigration matters, and he I spoke with him twice on this program, and both times he said he believes uh, Donald Trump's ban on uh, those seven initially now six countries is completely constitutional and that uh, Mr. Trump's uh, Trump is working within the Constitution. He had every right to make the decision that he made. But let's come full circle in the two minutes here we have left, Fran, and thank you so much for taking the extra time. Uh, Again, to looking at how we see the United States from Canada, maybe how much of the rest of the world sees the United States. You've had such a tremendous leadership position for for decades, for generations. And now there is, as someone uh, tweeted or not, uh, emailed a while back, what I'm worried about is a whole series of Baltimores developing in the United States over race relations, over political discord, over just the unhappiness in the U.S. Yeah, Roy, it's not out of the question. Feelings are running high, and as I said, Trump's political opponents are, again, this is, this is what we saw during eight years of Obama. I mean, does anybody in their right mind think that it's a good idea to demonize the police? I mean, are there bad apples in the police department? Sure. Uh, there are bad apples in every facet of life. But, I mean, the police, they're on, they're, they're on the borderline out there, okay, between us and them. And those folks, they have to do a darn hard job, and yet... I mean, basically, by the close of Obama's presidency, you would think that every cop in America was a bad guy. Yeah. That's just not, you know, that's yeah. not leadership. A president doesn't do that. That divides the nation. And unfortunately, we're still trying to recover from that. Fran, it's always uh, educational and it's always a privilege to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time. Always a pleasure on my part, too, Roy. You have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. Fran Coombs is the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Here's, here's why there was a mistrial. There were too many Bill Cosby fans on that jury. That's why there was a mistrial. There were too many Bill Cosby fans on that jury, and that's why there was a mistrial. So yesterday we had time for a few calls after I spoke with Gloria Allred. And interestingly, uh, female callers, women callers, 
were felt that um, Cosby was not guilty. The male caller we had time for felt that Cosby is guilty. And I've run into this divide more than once. We started to talk about just in private conversations. Is Bill Cosby guilty or not guilty of being a, a sexual predator? And more women, and I'm just going from memory here, but I think more women were inclined to say that Cosby was not guilty of being a sexual predator than were men. I found men to be more condemning of Cosby. Now, that's probably a fluke. It's probably just the people I talk to, but it's worth considering, is it not? So I'm going to ask you two things in a couple of minutes. Number one, do you believe that Bill Cosby is a sexual predator who should have been found guilty by that jury? Uh, and do you support my view, or challenge it, that there were too many Bill Cosby fans on that jury? Now, I found it, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a judge. Well, I may be a judge, but I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I found it interesting that, um, I know you're working on that one. I found it interesting that the jury came back, and they wanted the, the judge to describe to them what reasonable doubt meant. Well, I don't think it's that difficult to figure out what reasonable doubt is. Uh, there may be a, a legal uh, definition, but am I reasonably doubtful that Bill Cosby is guilty? Not a chance. I know I didn't hear all the evidence, but I know enough that if I was on that jury, and if I was the only one, Mr. Cosby would be wearing a jumpsuit with a number on it for the rest of his crappy life. So, I used to be a huge Cosby fan, loved the guy. Went to see him in theaters. I was a huge Cosby fan. Not no more, folks. If you want to get ready to express your opinion, phone lines are open to you at 800-263-2428. I'll put you on hold, and that way you'll be sure to get a shot at it. 800-263-2428. Too many Cosby fans on that jury, yay or nay? And uh, did you find him? Do you think he was guilty or not? We'll see how it breaks down, whether it does break down by gender. With us to talk about uh, the trial and the verdict and what happens next is one of this country's leading criminal lawyers. He's also an op-ed writer for the Globe and Mail, David Butt from Toronto. David, thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, Roy. Good to be back. So uh, I just shot my mouth off. So um, is it possible that after all of the jury selection that goes on and intelligent people select juries, and they have psychologists to evaluate during jury selection whether this juror should, this person should be a juror or, or shouldn't. Is it possible that that jury wound up with too many Cosby fans? Yes, it is. Uh, you know, uh, there are many jurisdictions who, uh, Canada is one of them, where we don't spend nearly the time uh, with psychologists and in-depth uh, surveys and so on trying to... Uh, sort of guess how a juror will think, 
because frankly, it's a, it's a very inexact science. So you could have all the psychologists in the world advising and, and take months to select a jury, and you're still down to the great variability of human nature. So uh, really there are no guarantees no matter how careful you are in, in picking a jury. There can always be uh, people on that jury who have predispositions that will affect how they decide the case. Once they started, they started to ask for explanations, and they started to uh, send smoke signals pretty early into, into deliberation. And at that point, that was the first inkling I had that this jury has Cosby fans on it, and they're not going to convict Dr. Huxtable. They're not going to convict Dr. Huxtable. David, among your peers in the legal profession, how interesting was this case? Well, it's certainly the kind of case that you can say there are reasonable arguments going both ways. So it's a case that should go to trial. Uh, the ones that get pled out early, the lawyers can agree that really there's only one reasonable outcome. And there may be some negotiation back and forth, but ultimately the case is resolved by agreement. Cases like this, uh, where the viewpoints are at the polar opposite, one saying it was a very serious sexual assault, the other saying it was completely uh, innocent, uh, means that really you just have to have a judge or a jury uh, make the final decision because there's no prospect of agreement. Mm. So he went upstairs to get antihistamines, he said, and, uh, and he was just taking care of the women who were at his home. Does the jury being deadlocked reflect on the prosecutor? Does it reflect on the defense lawyer's presentation necessarily? Does, does it potentially reflect on the judge? Does it re reflect on, on all of them? Yeah, the, the answer, Roy, is that in any given case, um, it could be a reflection on any one or all of those folks. And the other thing that I would add to it is it could be a reflection on uh, the composition and, and the deliberations of the jury itself. So there are a great number of variables here, and the other thing that we really don't know is is that uh, jury deliberations take place in secret, mm -hmm. uh, and what what is the dynamic of uh, that actual jury room? What happened, uh, and and why did they get where they get? Those those are some questions that we can speculate on, but ultimately we're not going to be able to observe firsthand and know for certain what what went on. Can you give us an idea of what happens in a jury room? Just uh, just. Just generally, is there really one table? They all sit at a table and they and they discuss, and then they you know, either they vote by a show of hands or um, or or verbally or notes. I mean, what ha what happens inside the jury room? What's the dynamic? Yeah, uh, yes, it is a, a boardroom setting, and uh, you know they're comfortable boardroom chairs. People sit around, but what what the judge does is is always tell the jury. Uh, gives them a, a basic roadmap for how to go about deliberations. And some of the key points are, of course, you know, that the prosecution has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, some of the legal instructions. But in terms of the deliberation process, they uh, elect a, a foreperson. That's one of the first tasks. And that foreperson has the role of guiding the discussion. And another thing that the judge says is encourage uh, all jurors to listen to the views of others and suggest that they not take strong positions right up front, but rather listen to the developing conversations and be open to uh, change their mind. So the aim is to try to get as collegial a discussion as you can possibly have 
because they do have to arrive at a consensus, a unanimous verdict, if they're going to render a verdict at all. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that the retrial will see the same judge and the same prosecutor in play, probably the same defense attorney as well? Yes, I, I think that the, uh, the major professional players in the courtroom will be the same. Uh, the jury, of course, will be different. So in that dynamic, what that means is that each one of those players is privately assessing what they did at the first trial, and each one of those players is asking themselves, is there something I should do differently? Did I make a mistake? Is there something I did particularly well that I want to make sure to repeat? So it's very much like um, you know, a sports team has a home and away series. You know, they'll look at the game tape from the first game mm-hmm. in deciding how to play the second game. So the judge, the defense, and the prosecution will all be carefully analyzing what they can do better for the second trial. Would a jury in, in a second trial scenario where essentially the same evidence is going to be brought forward, the same charge is going to be brought forward, the same defendant is going to be there, the same complainant is going to be there, or maybe even be in the same courtroom and the same jury room, would a second jury be at any point emotionally perhaps inclined to at least think about the first jury not having convicted and would that be a, maybe a point, at least emotionally, in favor of Bill Cosby? It's certainly something that uh, is, is out there for everybody to take notice of. And, and, you know, jurors come from the community. They're obviously going to be aware of the uh, first mistrial. I would expect, however, that the judge will say, don't read anything into that. The judge will probably be very strongly encouraging the jury to decide the case based exclusively on what they hear in terms of evidence and argument in the courtroom at the second trial, and not to bring into that decision-making process anything from outside of the trial, including the first one. Does it ever get personal between the between the uh, prosecutor, between the, the defense and the judge? Yeah, I mean, you know what? Uh, we legal professionals are human beings, yeah. and we have emotions, and we have tempers, and we have short fuses, and we have... Uh, you know, more or less patience, depending on the day and depending on what's going on. So while we strive to present the case, which really has nothing to do with us personally, we, we strive to present it professionally, uh, you know, invariably emotions do enter in, and sometimes uh, they have to be uh, held in check, and sometimes we do a good job of that, and unfortunately sometimes we don't. Okay, did it surprise you that it turned out to be a mistrial? You know, uh, anything can happen with a jury. And that's the, uh, um, you know, I've been in this business for 30 years, and, and juries are 12 folks who none of us in the courtroom have ever seen before, typically, don't know very much about at all. And the interpersonal chemistry of 12 folks in a, in a room that we don't have access to, we can have all the professional training in the world, and uh, largely we're going to be guessing. So, uh, you know, anything can happen with the jury, and and. Um, mistrials from hung juries, that is, juries who are unable to reach a verdict, are not common, but you never know when they're going to occur, and they could occur in any given case. David, always appreciate the time. Thank you for for great answers and great insights into what happens as far as the law is concerned. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to help out, Greg. All the best. David Butt, criminal lawyer in Toronto, op-ed writer for The Globe and Mail. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.